2: To find out about our upcoming events, visit
3: londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
0: Good evening and welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's a real pleasure to welcome Leo Robson and Adam Mars-Jones. Leo is a writer and journalist for a wide variety of uh, literary publications. Um, Adam, as you all know perfectly well, is a critic and a novelist. And we're here tonight to celebrate the publication of the The long-awaited third part of his infinite novel, which began with Pilcrow, continued with Sedilla, and now is uh, volume three is Carrot. Um, Adam and Leo will be in conversation for about 45 minutes, following which we've got the roving mic for questions from the floor. Following which there'll be time to buy copies, uh, get them signed, recharge your glasses and such like. Um, Welcome, Leo. Welcome, Adam. Um,
4: Yeah, thanks everyone for coming. Um, So we're here to discuss the the latest of the three volumes in Adam's uh, self-described semi-infinite series of novels about John Cromer, who grows up in uh, Buckinghamshire and then goes to, has a mixed schooling, some of it specialist, some of it grammar, and then goes to Cambridge, and that's where we meet him, having just uh, graduated in 1973 in the third volume. Um, I'm just going to give a brief... um, Introduction to Adam's uh, Career as a, an author and, and a fiction writer um, Just because uh, Well, that's just kind of what I do um, <laughs> and so uh, But I keep it relatively brief and then uh, Adam's going to read a bit and we'll uh, Talk about the new novel and Adam's other fiction and then there'll be questions as John said, um, yeah so basically the reason why we're here is uh, is that in 1980 adam published a short story lantern lecture in a in a journal called corto that was edited by craig rain and craig rain called up faber and said that there was this young writer that he knew uh, and that jonathan cape were really interested in him which wasn't at all true so faber were like oh well we need to get involved with this guy and see if he's got anything else to do so 43 years later he's still being published by faber and faber i think it was like a good deal really (laughs) and um Yeah, and and he had two other stories of a similar kind. They were all fabrications on on real events. One of them involved the Queen, one of them involved a court case that Adam's father had him involved in, and one of them involved this family, which was Lantern Lecture. Uh, And Craig Raine did Adam a second favour, this time... Uh, more honest, which is that he gave the book to Martin Amis and said it was really good. And Martin Amis, licking his lips, being like, you know, I can get rid of a, a young pretender, <laughs> uh, took, to, took the book to review. And to his credit, um, though he admitted in the article that he was filled with resentful consternation at finding another twenty-something writer who was clever and brilliant and talented and so on. He, he you know, he he recognised, he openly admitted that the book was. Was uh, incredibly good and promising, or not promising, he said it would be by the by to talk about the book's promise when there's so much page by page achievement on display. And uh, he, it was a, b- a very fun piece, which unfortunately he isn't never collected anywhere because Adam paid him back by hounding him <laughs> in print for the next <laughs> uh, 30, 35 years, um, really. Um, but anyway, what, what he said essentially uh, was that he praised Adam's qualities of humour and uh, observation and, and precision um, and and so on. He said that after a certain while, it, this book of short stories just becomes a straightforward suspense novel and the mystery is just how emphatically will the new boy earn his spurs? And he, he, he is a very, as I say, Adam ruined this for everyone. You have to like really dig it out to, to find. But it's, it's, it's very funny because he tries, keeps on saying he wants to say it isn't good. He says, I don't want to score cheap points. I want to score expensive points and I can't. Um, anyway, Adam then was, as I think lots of people know, was, uh, was included on the granter list of best young novelists not having written a novel, only having written these stories. And then again, 10 years later, still having not written a novel,
2: which written would have been up public. So.
4: Well, OK. Yeah, that's true, actually, isn't it? Just, just just got in under the gate, which must have been slightly galling for people who'd written like seven or eight novels um, in that time. And so. And when Adam wrote his second novel, *Pilcrow*, which which is the first in this series, um, it was greeted by uh, by a, a long article in the *London Review of Books*, the uh, you know sister entity of of where where we're sitting, um, which is a it re- was a really fantastic um, account of what Adam was trying to do in the book, which about which I'm sure he has mixed feelings. And he said um, he said that Adam Mars Jones has been praised. Uh, for the slenderness of his work, increasingly for its non-existence. Um, uh, uh, But anyway, Adam has has got him back uh, in spades. And in the time since that book was published 15 years ago, he's published uh, four more novels, uh, a memoir, two books on film, I think, uh, yeah, seven or eight books in, in that time. And so that brings us up to the present, basically. And actually, at the end of that article, James Wood said that there was a threat or promise of two further volumes after Pilcrow, uh, And he said, we shall need them uh, to find out what this character John Cromer makes of Adam Mars Jones as a novelist, which brings us to the present day. And um, what, what do you think John Cromer has made of you as a novelist?
2: Ah, such a good question. Well, it's, it's now acknowledged that it's based on a friend's life. And I've always liked having an armature of fact to transform while also using something ideally on the public record so that even though I'm shifting it sideways, you can tell I'm not mangling it. Uh, And in this case, it's a very obscure life, but it was somebody I met uh, at Cambridge in the 70s uh, and he died last year. uh, (coughs) So I became both his literary executor and his actual executor, but he was also very much part of the project. Uh, I I invited his collaboration and I asked him a lot of questions, but he also had a surprising amount of input. He was a retired proofreader. That's what it said on his death certificate. So you can imagine he he was very interested in the choice of the font for the pilcrow. The word pilcrow came from him. He chose his name as John Cromer. uh, he, He was John and his initial was C, but he chose that. And I remember we discussed, because what we wanted for the pilcrow was that it shouldn't have an Art Nouveau curve. It shouldn't be like a Paisley design, because that would be too sinuous for him. I wanted it to be something very stiff and upright, with two little ornamental feet, this useless unbending body, and this heavy, dark head to one side. And he said, oh, I think old Gaudi or Garamond are what you need for that. So he had a lot of of input, or as we now say, agency, I think. at the same time, as he was a Hindu, he was convinced that he had no ego, that his ego was like the moon in the daytime. So he couldn't actually say, I'm so chuffed that you've written these novels about me. But he did love it. Uh, he, if, I got, if I invented something, he might forget that it hadn't happened. Uh, and equally well, when I made a mistake, I made a mistake in, in Pilcro, I had his granny staying in his childhood house and he said, "That was that's physically impossible. Where could she have been? She'd have had to hung by her heels like, a." vampire in the in the attic uh, but then he said I'd really like the idea so let's say that she did so because I what I didn't want to do was to retract a mistake because that would make me a biographer who needed somehow to keep in the territory of the real and there was always an element of fantasy transformation or inhabiting uh, his experience rather than trying to channel it uh, so from that moment, uh, I felt I was I was free. So in the new book, an awful lot. There's almost nothing that isn't suggested by John. For instance, uh, there's a discussion of the book "Sexual Anomalies and Perversions," fascinating book by Magnus Hirschfeld, which includes the crystal fetishist, a woman who's aroused by cut glass, uh, just extraordinary, which fits in with his preoccupations because for him, we think what we think is sex is actually a, a sort of uh, misleading refraction of the impulse to worship. So for him, the ser- sensuality and the spirituality are not different. But that book is fantastic for that purpose. And there's another book called Speaking of Shiva, which I saw on his shelves and took down. I don't know that I, we ever discussed it, but it was published in 1973. 75% of British publication, book publication takes place between October and December. So I thought nobody's really going to say this is a rubbish book because you got the, it wasn't published till November. In New I'm reading it in September. Because thank God, with a, a really obscure life like this, people don't correct you because the stuff is so internal. I mean, do I know that there were carpet tiles in a jury room in Cambridge Crime Court in 1973? I don't. The chance of somebody being able to overrule me is pretty slim. Do I know when and if they inserted, they had, they raised, they changed the doors of public lavatories, the cubicles in men' public toilets, so that you could see the feet? it 's highly unlikely, unlikely somebody's going to say you got that wrong, young man, as long as you steer clear of the military uh because they'll always correct you about that you're you're fine so i, I like the freedom that an obscure life that makes contact with people every with known people every now and then gives you i mean there there's a nice encounter with uh with Flanders from Flanders and Swan which John told me about but by and large and uh I think he went to the Mermaid Theatre and uh, famous oh, I forgot the name's gone out of my mind uh, famous impresario who uh, who put on um, pantos there who's a who's a known figure so every now and then but by and large this is sort of underbelly life which is what's to me, so freeing about it, and it, I can I know how daunting it is with the length, and maybe we'll talk about the length when I've written read something short to show I can control things, uh, because it, John was not only the things I've mentioned, uh, gay. Uh, disabled Hindu, he was also a pedantic mystic. So he set an enormous amount of store about tiny distinctions, the endless rows about my saying flaccid instead of "flaccid," and his refusal to understand me when I said dissect, because it's not supposed to rhyme with bisect cared hugely about those things and yet was a mystic who felt that every single differentiation was meaningless. (laughs) Uh, so, So it gives you a lot to play with. And the fact that the book is made up is entirely continuous. I mean, the story starts... John told me he could remember his birth and I said, I'm sorry, I cannot make that work, I just can't. There are episodes in your life that are better attested than that, I cannot. His trip to America, I said, I cannot make that work. Nobody would believe that you went to America so as to see if you could get bargain prices on carnivorous plants for import, and that when the plane was landing in L.A., they asked you where you were staying, and you had no idea, you and your wheelchair uh, in the hold, you had no idea, so you said the only part of Los Angeles whose name you knew, which was Watts. So in the immediate aftermath of the Watts riots, he and his wheelchair were unloaded on a pavement in Watts. And he was taken in by a guy who, (laughs) I cannot make that work. I'm not saying it didn't happen, I'm just saying you've reached the limits of my power to sell your stuff. But but as he didn't believe in in reality, as he had a very uh, grudging respect for the plausibility of everyday life, he didn't mind that. So uh, this is a passage from, uh, the whole book's set in Cambridge in 1973. And uh, My narrator has been enjoying a mildly flirtatious relationship with somebody called Mark O. If I pronounce it strangely, it's because I cap up the O because it's a childhood nickname from school when there was another Mark. So, living, who's living in the same block of flats and has a temporary job as a milkman. Postman. Why have I said postman? It's milkman. Okay. One day, Mark O nipped upstairs and returned with a chess set. The board was the type that folds in the middle, though its cloth hinge was beginning to come apart. The pieces, living in a lightweight wooden box with a sliding lid, were a motley crew, the survivors of a number of original sets, as if the game really did involve the capture of soldiers dragged off from one army to serve in another. It was the sort of chess set you sometimes see in pubs, battered and unloved, or loved by altogether too many people in passing. I didn't ask how he had acquired it. Do you play, he asked. Has been known. Fancy a game? If you like. He started to lay out the pieces. I let him get on with it and then intervened myself to turn one of my rooks upside down. Mark O was baffled. What are you doing that for? How do you mean? Why are you turning that piece upside down? From the mismatched pair, I'd chosen the rook with the intact castellations, and it stood upside down perfectly happily. I always do that. Don't you? Of course not. Is this some freaky John variation, some special set of rules? Not at all. Standard rules. This is how I've always played. You should do the same. He humored me. There. Does that make you happy? I looked down at the four rows of squares between the battle ranks. 32 squares in all, and for a few moments I had an impression that they were flickering. Of course, regular patterns in black and white are particularly conducive to the stroboscopic illusion. Without such effects, op could hardly exist. The afterimage left by a grid, black on white, white on black, produces interference patterns that destabilise each fresh cycle of perception, and the result is the impression of a swarming. It seemed to me, though, that I was picking up a different set of clashing currents, thanks to my deep, though partial, attunement to Mark O. I was becoming aware of a repressed competitiveness on his part, in fact a desire to win that was positively feverish. In preparation for our game, Marco was rousing his aggression from its customary doze. It stirred a little and gave a gibbering bark in its dreams. Soon it might snarl. As a person, he wished me well. As a player of the game, he wanted my graduate scalp and the chessboard seemed to buckle with the intensity of his need to lay waste to my troops to massacre the rank and file. My pieces were white. I was owed the first move. I looked down at the board, made a disapproving noise, and changed over the positions of my king and queen. Marco raised his eyebrows and gave a sigh. Do you have to do that? I think so, yes. I want everything to be right before we start. Does it give me a very big advantage? I don't mind. If it makes you happy, have it your way. I narrowed my eyes and surveyed the board with as much intellectual menace as I could muster. There has always been a fascination for me in the idea of action at a distance, and in this context, it would have been perfectly legitimate to tell Marco my opening move and leave him to perform it. But at this moment, this dramatic, though also silly, moment, it seemed important that I move the fatal piece myself. Instant reaction. What are you doing, John? making my first move. That's not a move. You're joking. I thought you said you knew how to play. I'm doing my best, except that my opponent is doing such a good job of distracting me, not very sportsmanlike. Are you going to get on with it? Play. John, I keep trying to tell you that's not a legal move. That's not a square that a pawn can reach, just like that. Ordinarily, pawns can move one square straight ahead, but from their starting position, they can move two squares as a special treat. Yes, I see. Both legal moves from where I'm standing, but not the only ones. The only other legal starting move is for a knight to move onto the third rank like this, he demonstrated. I'd be able to call them King's Knight and Queen's Knight, by the way, except that you've messed up messed with the board for your own amusement. The rules have been around for about a thousand years, you know. It's not hard to pick them up. A thousand years? Are you sure? I I thought it was quite a newly invented thing. Then you don't know what you're talking about. I hear that a lot. But what was the name of the piece you were just demonstrating? It's a knight, for God's sake. I have to admit, I've never heard it called that. By now, Marco was exasperated and I was having enormous fun. What the hell do you call it then, John? I call it a long leaper. And that's because because it captures by jumping over any piece, more than one if the state of the board permits a compound manoeuvre. I see, said Marco, very much in the spirit of someone soothing a deluded nursing home resident. I've been called a little Napoleon often enough in my time, though why anyone would want want to be Napoleon with Alexander the Great on offer, I can't imagine. He touched my king, and what's the name of this piece? He's the king, crucially important, yet somehow powerless moves a single square in any direction. The game ends when he's threatened with capture and can't escape. That's a relief. There's hope for you yet. Maybe. And how about this chap? His finger was on my upside down rook. Immobiliser. I'd had a relapse. And why is it upside down? So you don't get it mixed up with the coordinator. His finger went from the reversed rook to the one that was still upright at the other side of the board, and he raised his eyebrows. I nodded. And this game is called chess? Oh, no. At least I've never called it that. (laughs) I see. I saw he was seething. And I wondered for a moment if I'd gone too far. Leading him on was an irresistible treat. So this game is called Ultima. Ultima invented in the 1960s by Robert Abbott, and not quite sweeping the globe, but hanging on among a few groups of devotees. If you'd wanted a game of chess, you should have said so. It was technically true that he hadn't specified a game, simply asked if I played. I played, all right. I played him for all he was worth, exploiting his eagerness to trounce me on the black and white killing field, This quibble wouldn't have saved me from being pelted with rooks, both reversed and right way up, if he took it the wrong way. It took a moment for the deception to sink in, and for a further moment I wasn't sure how he was going to take it. Then he said, ''Do you know what you are, John? You're a taker of the piss and a wind-up merchant.'' That's what. Taker of the piss and wind-up merchant. In that time and that place... Each of these phrases, in isolation, was high praise, and to be called both at once almost made my heart burst with joy.
4: Yeah. So, as,
2: <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Lear. <laughs> um,
4: as we can, as you, as we can tell from the the passage. Um, the book is constructed out of these, this kind of microscopic uh, analysis that John has of incidents. Um, and so, for instance, when he does jury duty for uh, a week, uh, working on two pretty nugatory cases, that lasts like 98 pages, like his wrangling with the other jurors and what they're eating, their attitudes to smoking, what they're reading, and, and so on. Um, and the book as a whole, I actually... I think this is presumably true in the finished version. the The two previous um, volumes were divided into four or five sections. Yeah. In the new book, I don't think you have subdivisions the, at the, all, the, except these these small ones. Uh, there's there's two hundred and twenty one unnumbered little headings <laughs> okay. um, that like sort of subdivide it, but you can kind of ignore them and keep going. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, it's just very continuous. But that, that's
2: to aerate the, the reader's experience. The previous novels were divided into sections because they corresponded to institutional moves. So the childhood home, there's an interlude going by train to the hospital, the hospital, the disabled school, and then in the next volume, the grammar school, uh, Cambridge. I mean, so there is, there is a sort of logic, and his his... Status doesn't change from the moment he becomes a graduate to the end of this novel. So there seemed no purpose in having a a chapter that didn't have a real structural purpose. But we do need to uh, come with the fact, if I was a better writer, I would never have written this book. Because having decided I wanted to write about John, I would have found a way to do it. In 400 pages in the third person maybe but the moment you start writing in the third person or i'd have gone off and written something else saying i no, can't can't do it but i did want to make this happen and it seemed to me that deceleration was the crucial element that disability slows you down blindness and visual impairment to a certain extent slows down your negotiation of space deafness or partial uh, hearing impairment slows down communication and social life and immobility or certainly uh, mobility difficulties, the level that John has them, slows down time itself because you can't move with the things, you, you can't keep pace with other people's interaction and the link between internal and external processing, you know, you're going into the world and you're thinking about the world, is attenuated and almost broken. Uh, and that has a, an enriching effect because John has to make a little go a long way. But I can see that for a reader, it's Fucking daunting. Are we allowed to say that? Yes, very daunting. If I hadn't written it, I wouldn't want to read it because... uh, Well, it's it's just true. If somebody said, there's this book about a disabled gay Hindu getting on with his life, it's really good. No, not for me, thank you very much. Uh, And that's part... That's why I think it, it needs a bit of a push to get a bit of momentum in the same way that if you tell people that this, there's this book, it's about schoolboys on, on an island and there are no adults and how they survive. People say, why oh, read that? And then you say, uh, there's this book, it's about a, a provincial housewife, she reads books, she takes love she's still bored, she takes rat poison. You think, Not for me, thank." <laughs> but when you know it's Madame Bovary, you read it. So this needs, people need to read this because it's Pilcro, because somebody has said, this is not Defined by its subject matter, but by a series of, of responses to its subject matter that change the way the reading experience works. I, mean, uh, I think a long novel, and this is now a 2,000 page novel, is almost like the opposite of a short novel. I think it becomes the territory of both and, uh, where material works differently. And I can see I'm almost saying it's like the opposite of a black hole, that it's like a white super sphere or something, where material works differently. There isn't as much material as you'd expect, but I remember there was an article in the LRB by Nicholas Spice that said the revolutionary thing about Wagner's operas was how little material there was. You know, that when you start listening to the ring, what you hear is a chord of E major for minutes on end. There had never been so little in an opera before. And because it's so big and has been so influential, people forget that... It's predicated on a certain scarcity or a certain way of making materials stretch. But I think the way, because the action of a long novel is oceanic, there can be a very violent event, but not there has been yet, uh, but it will be rubbed down like bits of sea glass get worn down in a tide. Nothing overwhelm, it's not about a single thing. And what I've mainly been doing is trying to stop one element from being subordinated to any other element and feeling that you end up with something that is both comic and tragic, both light and serious. Uh, And even things like, is it the transcription of a voice or is it John writing a text? It's both. In a way that, in a short novel, I mean, I remember complaining—not complaining, but pointing out that in Flaubert's *Parrot*, some of the conventions are as if somebody is speaking, as if Jeffrey Braithwaite is speaking. So there'll be dot 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 when there's something he doesn't want to talk about—the breakup of his marriage. But other things are clearly somebody writing. And in that short novel, I felt that was uh, that uh, tension or that paradox that discrepancy was a failing but it's hugely in this book I mean there are moments where I talk about the way Americans write the word fetus with an e rather than oe and it's very clear that you know I'm inviting you to look at text that I'm producing but other times the character can say I say that's rather good I must write that down and obviously the joke is that if you're reading it it's because it's already been written down but I think that both and feeling the sense that this character in this context is weirdly liberated from the binary choices, despite it being a novel about somebody whose choices seem to be incredibly restricted. When you mentioned right. the deceleration, and um I couldn't help
4: noticing that this book, that the first book takes place over basically 15 years, the second book takes place over. Uh, seven and a half years and the new book which is the, also the longest takes place over about <laughs> six months if that right like from June
2: to December 1973 so what's going on <laughs> what's going on uh, well that's how it came out but I'm not too bothered because in Pilcrow, John learns to walk By I mean, his stride is an inch and a half, he calculates. And he models his walk on a robot, a plastic robot that uh, was a popular toy in the 50s that that would sort of walk its way down a slope because it had just enough uh, movement in the hips to make that possible. Uh, And while he's doing it, he talks about having to do half the distance and then half the distance again. So he talks about Zeno's paradox. So I'm not too bothered by that. Uh, because it's so much not a teleological book. It's not moving towards an end. Uh, you, You don't find that the butler did it at the end. You don't find even that Marcel has finally found his vocation. It's not like that at all. It's supposed to be pleasurable as you go along, and it's the flight of the arrow, not its destination, that is important. But one of John's phrases, and this shows that he was a literary man in his way, he talked about the fractal brocade, was his description of the first two books. He read some of the material in character, not very much. Uh, and I liked fractal brocade, both for the, the feeling of the richness of the texture and this idea that in a fractal pattern, as you magnify, you get repetitions of the same pattern so that it's self-similar. And I think the, the constant interplay between powerlessness and certain sorts of power, supremely the power of having the voice because if it is your story told in the first person, that is where the power is. And whether or not it's a powerless life as seen from outside doesn't affect that. I just have to organise it. Another sort of antin- antinomy that I think disappears is, is it loosely or tightly constructed? I mean, what, what do you think?
0: Um,
4: I think, it well, I mean, I think it's, like uh well, as you said about your memory of your father like pseudo rambling in the sense <laughs> that it's like um in the sense that you f- well you feel and and Nikhil who's here tonight writing about it said there can be boring passages without every many be- ever being boring sentences so the feeling throughout is of intense precision uh, and care and and actually I was going to um ask you a, a a little bit about um the the sense in which it's constructed almost like sentence by sentence. And it reminded me a tiny bit of, at times, and I don't know whether he was an influence on you, but a tiny bit of the way Amos constructed his novels is basically trying to like earn a cheer almost at like the end of more or less every sentence, like it really is. So I would say it's been approached tautly, but obviously at times when you're like, you know, seeing how long you've been in the same... Moment of bickering between two, or like the, like the passage you read, well, it's conscious, isn't it? You know, you're deliberately like testing the reader, and there are about 15 gags throughout it which are about the fact that you're putting us through something, you know. It's so it's a sort of, you know, uh, meta torture, I suppose,
2: at times <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> Pseudo random uh, meta torture, you but, really yeah. know how to sell a book, don't you? <laughs> but, yeah, but, uh, I mean, from my point of view, my, my process. To call it that is completely intuitive only afterwards i mean i couldn't have talked about time and deceleration theoretically or analytically even having written pilcrow it's only because more attention is being paid to this book i'm being asked more and so you prepare questions oh that's what i was doing so that's a part of my thought but there are a couple of long novels i, I don't think amos wrote uh what's the longest that he wrote ronfield's all the information I okay. okay but the long novels i read that Taught me, I felt about the long novel. One was uh, *Mason and Dixon* of Thomas Pynchon, which I was uh, forced is too too strong a word. I was begged to review for *The Observer* by Robert McCrum, my first editor at Faber, who was then a literary editor of *The Observer*, and he and he said darling, I'm sorry, I didn't tell you it was coming up. I've had a stroke, you know, so it's really hard to say no. So I had to read and review a book, in a a thousand-page book, in a week, uh, which I I did, and I enjoyed the book. But one of the principles in that book, which is explicitly announced, is lamination. In other words, the way if things are presented in slices, very thin opposite slices, which is partly the way I think that the first batteries were made. Uh, with metals or acids or something, I don't know anything about. But the examples he gives are the samurai sword and the strength that comes from folding different sorts of steel against each other and the flakiness of the croissant. These are explicitly mentioned in Mason and Dixon as examples of lamination. And I thought what that meant was on any page there would be a bit of brilliantly convincing historical research and a stupid reality-breaking gag. I mean, in Mason and Dixon, there is a sailor with enormous forearms who says, who happens to be, no, he's a rabbi, but he has enormous forearms and he uh, uh, gives the version of Yahweh saying, I am what I am. Uh, (laughs) Popeye, Uh, somebody, somebody in 18th century America says live long and prosper. I mean, it's ridiculous, but the lamination means... On every page, there is that tension between things that convince you, things that make you doubt, things that beguile you. The only thing about that book was, even though it's incredibly well-researched, I didn't know why he was interested in Mason and Dixon. I didn't really know why it was that story that he was both hugely diving into and pulling back from the whole time. So I, it seemed to me that was a weakness, if, you, if by the end, of it you thought it could have been anybody else treated in the same way because it's the lamination which made it so fascinating but I do I think lamination is more what I'm trying to do here but it's much more consistent Uh, and the laminating elements are the elements of him being gay, a Hindu and disabled because they're not quite like rock, paper, scissors but it's easier to write about a gay disabled man than it is a gay uh, a straight disabled man I think because of the particular assumption that male sexuality is active, whereas it's acknowledged that if you're both men, it's not so simple. So that is, a, that is an advantage to writing about disabled sex. Uh, and I know from experience with historical John that one of the first things he did, I think the first day I met him, he said, it's your turn to take me to the laboratory. So you find yourself lifting this stranger up. And it's hard to exaggerate how little men touched each other in the 70s. Uh, as a general rule. I'd love to see cut together every Wimbledon final from post-war and the handshake, from the most distant in Chile to the orgies of hugging or very noticeable dislike showing. But people, men were not like that. And the fact that you were trusted with somebody's safety and the physical warmth of this person, who was clearly already flirting, <laughs> you'd already passed beyond, you, you did not have the power to say, I'm not touching you because you already were. Um, off you went. And he knew how easy it was to get below people's defences in that way. So that, that is one of the things. The, the Hinduism is real and it's very healthy to me because he regards pain as unreal, as not having any particular stated is unrelated to anything else. So the way I can use those elements and the pedantry and the mysticism on every page, that's my version of lamination. The other thing was a book called The Kindly Ones, which won a Goncourt Prize, Jonathan Littell, which is a fantastic achievement, very ugly and gruelling novel, until about 500 pages in, and then he has a character who's been unequivocally dead turn up and start talking, and you lose faith with the whole project and it begins to unravel and towards the end the narrator bites Hitler's nerves and then there's a sort of keystone cops chase through an underground passage and by the end of it you think god what 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 happened to this you've you've subverted too much and you've got bored with the absolutely confrontational realism and you've destroyed it by introducing an unreliable narrator at the last moment we needed one. So he's got away with a lot before then. There's a passage with a man who's 140 years old, or claims to be, and there are photographs in the novel that show him looking exactly the same in old photographs. And uh, the narrator says, okay, you're gonna die today. And the man says, I don't die here. This is not where I die. And so the narrator says, so take me where you die. And they go off into the mountains. And the man says, this is where I died. And he says, dig your grave. No." You're going to kill me. You dig my grave. Uh, this extraordinary passage, which could be a Kafka parable and doesn't really belong in the book, but because it's ten pages and it doesn't deeply violate what's going on, you swallow it. That's my excuse for the <laughs> for the, for the uh, role-playing sex with Max Bygraves soundtrack uh, in this book <laughs> because it is a little bit. Uh, I do. Uh, it's based on something John told me, but I do elaborate it to the point that it's plainly not realistic. But I I don't think by that stage that i forfeit. If there's a reader who says, I'm sorry, I'm not reading any longer, then they just don't know back to my (laughs) by-grade. Did did you have trouble with that passage?
4: No, I mean, to be (laughs) honest, I think the one thing that it's difficult to communicate, um, and I think even hearing a passage out of context, um, uh, you know, can't exhibit it really, is just how immersive, the book is so I think like, my reading speed was probably like unvaried and there's a there are, you have a there are a number of reflections on reading particularly on um June the novel June um uh, a, a about how when you're reading it's essentially you're essentially locked into a perspective and there are other little gags like talking about how you're trying to make a uh, a silk purse out of the most unpromising of materials and so on like little sort of winks reminders of, of of it and and so on so yeah no i didn't i didn't have trouble with that i mean when you just just uh, i think in a minute we should open up questions but i was just going to ask um you talked about the rock paper scissors effect and and when you're going through the novel you can feel that like in, you know that you'll get something about uh, john's personal gay experience or his involvement in gay activism then there'll be might be a lengthy digression or that's probably not the right word but a passage about his reading um, in mysticism and, and so on. I think the, the, the one area where I wouldn't quite agree with that description is I feel that the, the sort of English pedantry, obsession about language, obsession about diacritical marks on letters and so on seems quite continuous with uh, his interest in Hindu mysticism even though one of them is about is this incredibly often kind of grindingly banal English stuff and talking about the Kenwood mixer and the archers and so on and on the other hand he's talking about how this is all just you know meaningless earthly Maya and so on but I feel like in details like he's amazed and everyone else is amazed that he's able to move his own telephone line that he's had as an undergraduate in Downing College to his new Um, lodgings in this building which may or may not be a hotel there's a sort of uh, internal debate about that or it's partly an hotel or is it a hotel and so on Uh, and that there seems to be details throughout the book that seem to be trying to reconcile a kind of fascination with small earthly things and this bodilessness or egolessness that is John's sort of supposedly deeper preoccupation.
2: You think he is trying to reconcile it or that I am? But-
4: I think in the way that you write about these mundane things, it doesn't feel like that they're at odds with uh, his mysticism.
2: Huh? Yeah, I- hadn't really thought about it. i mean, my main read it concern, again. Then. My main concern was, again, this is a note very late on in the press, and you think, why write it down? Because clearly I really know. I think maybe because I was trying to impress Alex Bowler, the editor at Faber, who very much made this. Didn't make it happen, but I was dispirited after the first two volumes because they had such good reviews and nobody wanted to read them, or they had a very small readership. And when your publisher emphasises how much money has been lost by publishing it, <laughs> it doesn't exactly make you rush to do more or when they say oh we we, we were going to redesign Cedilla for the paper bag but it's only it'll only sell 1500 copies I mean they they did because my agent said do you want to publish it or not do you like it or not but the the, the sense of it being prestige but not somehow not thrilling to them was depressing and then Alex Bowler came along and was thrilled or, or so it could be finished actually I think you were surprised by how quickly it could be finished uh, because it was all lying there. It just needed you know, one person who was actively waiting for it and could transform its status. So that made a difference. But the note, one note I gave to him was no macro plot, just micro plot. In other words, little ripples of consequence that maybe go over 30 pages or so but nothing overarching because I can do plot in an emergency but it's it's not my it's not my uh, default position it's not how I write but I think plot is there to bring the element of necessity that things have to happen and in the past I've had different ways to do that usually illness so uh, a narrator with AIDS for instance uh uh Various ways in which necessity... I mean, the character Colin in Box Hill, who is essentially kidnapped and raped and decides he's fine with it. Uh, But there has to be necessity, and John's body provides all the necessity you could want. And the urge to escape from the... Restriction that his family would put on top of that, particularly his mother would put on top of that. Uh, one thing that I found maddening, because the novel is so continuous and so linear, was John told me this story about watching the television series. Uh, was it yes. talking with the, talking to a stranger? Talking oh. to the stranger. Uh, after I published those two novels, he suddenly says, oh, yes, in the 60s, we used to sit around the television and watch this extraordinary programme, and I did a drawing of Judy Dench because she was so amazing, and there was a picture of her in the Radio Times, and I can draw really quite well, as long as it's in a tiny bit at the edge of the paper. And the bit in the, in the, uh, the programme where the mother... It, ..where the daughter says, wouldn't my mother have loved a little crippled kitty? Uh, and so I thought... That's so annoying. Why didn't you tell me at the time? So I have to come up with a flashback that isn't a flashback, if you see know what I mean. <laughs> so Christmas 1973, his sister has kept the drawing and she's corrected the I of Judy, because I've just written Judy, uh, John has just written Judy on She's corrected the I to a Y because she knows that's right. And she says, is, is, is she your girlfriend? And somehow I managed to get the flashback into the Sundays because I thought it was too such a strong episode and there it has ramifications later on in the fractal brigade so I did want it definitely to be there but the fact that he said every week we would gather around the television we were united in watching this family that could not talk to itself and I thought yeah I'm sorry uh, I've broken the rules of linearity to put that bit in.
4: Yeah I mean I think well, you mean that you would have had to have mentioned it early because the books
2: cover everything yeah, that happened yeah, to him? Logic, but it's only four episodes. Yeah, no, but, it, but the, a flashback does violate the linearity. Saying you know, putting something in that, I, that would have been possible to put in somewhere else, uh, is a, it's, a, it's an aesthetic flaw. But I thought that the value of that moment and the terrible moment, because thank God the mother is out of the room when the particular bit about wouldn't it have made her life perfect if she'd had a crippled child to look after for the rest of her life, that uh, the father and son watched the television, and I described it being... We we didn't communicate, but we didn't need to. It was as if Bone had been punched through in a sort of double trepanning, and we suddenly realised that what was in front of us was the one that... uh, I mean, I think the
4: break or exception on the idea that it's microplots and not a macroplot is that the book's do they do have an arc of sorts even if it's not closer even if you can't see it all the way along all the way along so this does the penultimate episode really of the book is this quite dramatic and sort of traumatic family reunion the second volume ends with him leaving university and having nowhere to live and essentially having to live in his mini which is kind of like quite a big character in the in the series in fact I can't remember whether it's the car he's driving but the the series begins with him with a sort of what's it Uh, prolepsis of him learning how to drive as a teenager and that's the freedom that that will afford and so on so to that degree even if you don't sense it as you're going along it it does you feel different on page 746 than you do on page one
2: i i hope so but it's it's more constructed as three huge panels uh the first one getting these getting into, into Mayflower House and the sort of love affair <clears throat> with Marco, the jury service, the family. They're like huge panels that are covered in a trellis and grown over with the various themes. You know, they are meant to be distinct, but not, not to the point where you feel a lurch from one to the other. Uh, there's not meant to be a lurch at any point, uh, I don't think. Or it's certainly not a, a narrative lurch, sometimes. Uh, I do like to bring an element of surprise. Uh, and it's surprising how, I mean, it's odd to me how the absolute linearity and that you exactly know what the character is doing. I mean, that, that's, I think, what makes it readable in a way that it wouldn't be otherwise is you don't need, you can put the book down, come back to it a month later, and you don't need to do any catch up. He's still there. You know, he's, he's, not, he's not suddenly pricing carnivorous kind of plants in Los Angeles. Well,
4: um, Nickel in his in his review in The Telegraph sort of gave a, a user's guide how you should read it you know not but as so as to say to readers you don't need to be in any way cowed um my, my approach
2: has been there's a my I, i'm not a huge fan of henry james but i have sometimes written in copies of pilcrow something he said about flobe which is those readers who are des- denied the refreshment of a swoon are encouraged to take up the book at considerable intervals <laughs> <laughs>
4: people in the audience to ask Adam uh, questions uh, and there's a microphone uh, somewhere.
3: Okay. Hello uh, I have a question which relates to you um, making a decision on how realistic the, the Stacks episode was and given that life routinely wouldn't get past the sort of script editor in terms of plausibility you know and it's sort of so much strange in fiction what's that you know imitates bad television not art you know that sort of thing but how do you decide given that life so often and in fact the example you gave uh of the television you know could be seen as too convenient or you know sort of implausible in other ways how how, as, as i should sorry separately say i'm really happy that you don't you haven't sort of uh, allowed yourself to be bullied into plot because people <laughs> because you know I'm a huge fan of Fellini and there's not you know dolce vita hasn't I mean you know you just don't you don't need that necessarily yeah. it's more it's more sort of you know beautiful memorable moments my fam- my
2: favorite story about fellini is that uh, one of the actors he worked with said Every film shoot with Federico, it's a party. And then the last day of the shoot, you have the best party ever. And he says, darlings, we've made a masterpiece. See you next year, we'll make another film. And then he he, he, he climbs the steps to the editing suite with his arm around his editor, who is Ruggero Mastroianni, Marcello's brother, and just before the door closes, he says, now what are we going to do with all this shit? So, uh, <laughs> it, it, what what made me think that this was working was the feeling that things were bubbling up rather than being imposed by my will. For instance, I I knew John had spent three days, uh, three nights in the car. I didn't know where. And I chose a place almost at random that was near Downing, walking around Cambridge. This'll do. It's quiet off Lensfield Road. There's a screen of trees between this and Trumpington Street. And it was only... As after I'd written some passage about it, that I explored just a little bit and found that it's within 100 yards of what's called the Hobson Monument, which is the monument to Hobson who brought the water supply to Cambridge in the 17th century, but is the origin of, this, of the phrase Hobson's choice. So that immediately came in because there are two versions of Hobson's choice. One is it's commonly thought that Hobson's choice means you have no choice. You get what you're given. But there's a reason for that, which is Hobson refused to let you choose the fastest horse because then the fastest horse would always be tired and would not be the fastest. So he would give you the fastest horse that was practicable, that was not tired. And so immediately I find I have a sentence that I didn't have to start with. There's more than one way of having no choice. And that's so clearly in the vein of the book, but it comes from a completely arbitrary decision. One thing that I was able to tell John uh, in his last months of life, because I've been researching the Cambridge Evening News, which again is almost a a character uh, in the book, is I found that the place where he was living, Mayflower House, I hadn't realized how big it was. He'd never said it was seven stories high. I didn't think of it. And I suddenly find that it's not only seven stories high, but that it has 108 flats. And 108 was his magic number, absolutely important to him. When I gave, when I sent him money, he'd always say, "Can I have a number?" And number was always 108. So I said, "John, you were living in a mystical environment. You might as well have been living in Machu Picchu." But uh, so the feeling that things were in the grain. I mean, the the novel begins and ends with a discussion of spoons. And it was only when I was writing the passage about spoons towards the end with Uri Geller bending them and the fact that, which is true, that at Christmas 19, over New Year 1973, the metallurgy department of Cambridge University was testing those spoons to see if they contained mystical particles. I don't know. But it was only when I was writing that at the end of the book that I thought, hold on. Didn't we start with spoons? But I mean, it was not in the least planned. I didn't think this will be spoon to spoon, the next one will be tureen to ladle. I don't know. Uh,
4: I think but... there was a more than enough
2: cutlery analysis in this one. <laughs> <you want> <laughs> Right. But the, the, the sense that things are rising up from the material rather than being Im- imposed in it, that's what makes you think you make things work. And I wasn't sure about the sex scene with the Max, Max Bygres, even though it was based on something that John told me, where somebody did want to be sexually dominated in a way that was not possible for somebody who can't walk. But the, they arranged it so that John would lie on the floor and would loom under the guy who was dominating and basically send such a strong forced the suggestion that it was as if John was towering over him, but it was clearly appropriate to dominate from underneath, is sort of what John does. But also at the end of the episode, what made me think, no, that is worth keeping, was his realisation that when he's completely in control, he doesn't actually like it. That even though he seems very bossy, he needs to be resisted. You know, that's the pleasure, is to have some resistance. And when he has absolute power, it's sort of a bit disappointing.
3: Um, I was wondering, Adam, was the experience of writing the new novel uh, after John's death different to writing the previous ones? And do you think it's had an effect on the book? An awful
2: lot of it was repeat the before. Question. Yeah sorry. Uh, the question is whether John, historical John's death makes a difference. I don't think so, uh, because I can go on writing sentences in the first person that are about him. So in that way, he isn't dead. Functionally, I can go on inhabiting him in the way that I did before, but it's also quite recent. I mean, it was April 2022 that he died, so by then, in fact, there was. Uh, I mean, the next volume is not. There's. There, I cut this. I cut this volume in half, so there's still an awful lot uh, that's pretty much written. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's
3: just long the manuscript. <laughs> so,
2: so, I
3: don't know.
2: Also, I mean, <laughs> the fact that I'm, I'm John's literary executive, he wrote a, he wrote a, his own bit of life writing in the 90s, uh, an account of his life in, I think it's done in 1985 and 1986. He writes a section about uh, one month in one year and one another to contrast his life in... Uh, in a, t- a little vi- village called Iselam in Cambridgeshire and in Tamil Nadu and I thought it was good At some of it is very funny and I did circulate it amongst my uh, my contacts in uh, in the literary world but they didn't buy, buy it but one thing I said to him was, was John it's, it doesn't seem like your voice it seems a little bit naive, there's a sort of put on naivety about it and he said blame Sue two, two Townsend I was very influenced by, by Adrian Mole <laughs> so there's that to look forward to because I can put that I hope I can put that in the mix I, mean, I commissioned a friend uh, who I knew was a milkman in Cambridge at that time I said please write down everything you remember about your temporary milkman because I felt it was legitimate to sort of commission first hand experience from somebody with a sensibility very different from me or John and it, it happened he wasn't it was, it, he was a graduate who was trying to earn money so as to pay his, money, his parents back for money they supported him so much nobler but uh, but all those details about the uh, the milk round came from him and uh, thank you very much
4: Um, I think maybe we've got time for like uh, one more question if uh, anyone has one
0: Um, so you've already hinted there's 800 or so more pages already done Um, so you've joked here and on the dust jacket about it being semi-infinite but is there a sense I mean allowing for time and publishing and life and so on how long it could go on this sequence uh, well, uh, I don't know if you remember
2: the, the writer Richard Hughes, uh, who, famous for High Wind in Jamaica and so forth, he announced a trilogy which was called The Human Predicament, and I do think it's a mistake to, to go in quite that strong. Uh, and the first the first volume was The China Shepherdess, which is much... No, The Fox in the Attic, much acclaimed for an account of Hitler after the Beer Hall Putsch. Fifteen years later, there's The China Shepherdess, and then he died before Volume 3 was published. But there's some correspondence where he says it's a race between the publisher and the undertaker. And I think that's, that's clearly the case, because uh, the book... uh, I haven't heard any convincing account of what this book is like. Uh, The first volume, somebody said perfectly intelligently that it's like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest written by Denton Welch. I mean, that's fine as a sort of general placing statement, but it doesn't cover the subsequent volumes. Uh, And I think Tristram Shandy is the only thing that comes close. Uh, But that's like saying file under unclassifiable. I mean, it's, it's not very close, but... For some reason, Pilcro appealed hugely to Italian editors. I earned more money from the Italian translation of uh, Pilcro than I did from Faber because there was a bidding, I won't call it, what well, bidding skirmish between two publishers. And I said, is either of them owned by Berlusconi? Because in that case, let's go with the other. And the agent said, I can put your mind at rest. They're both owned by Berlusconi. <laughs> uh, and they were they were technically forbidden from... Uh, bidding against each other. So uh, they just had to bid something high and hope something happened. But there is a perfectly good Italian word for the pilcrow, which is piede di mosca, fly's foot with a hyphen, the equivalent hyphenated. And I thought it was quite nice, the idea that John is down with the fly's feet looking up. But they decided to publish it as Vita e opinioni di John Cromer. And I said, why? And they said, because Tristram Shandy is a really big book. you think, well, apparently not. (laughs) So they didn't translate volume two. Uh, and I can see, I think that was a good translation because it was Adeline, Adelaida Chioni who, published, who uh, translated Infinite Jest. So if you're, if you're up to that, you can probably uh, handle Bilbo. Uh But so I think the Tristram Shandy thing, and Tristram Shandy ends with a, with a cock and bull uh, story. I mean, it's throwaway. doesn't matter. I don't think people would mind really if... Mervyn Peake had never written Titus Alone. Is there anything in Titus Alone that really have you, is that a book you've read? Uh, the, the first, I mean, the first two books are enough. So uh, I'll carry on and, and see what when happens. When
4: sequels yeah. get a bit of a slagging off in this book. Oh, yeah, oh yes, well, except the I, I say the, te-
2: a... the New Testament is yeah, <laughs> okay. Test, yeah, the New Testament. Yeah, yeah. But that. the question is whether I can pull out of the fractal dive. Whether I'm going to go so deep into the moment that time stops altogether
3: but
2: I um... have <laughs> um we need to wrap up in a sec but I was just thinking that
4: this book Well, the the uh, origin of this project was that John C was uh sitting under a tree uh in India the and he was listening yeah and he was listening to uh, the BBC World Service and he heard Adam reviewing um Urban Welsh or the no the, the film time. uh Danny Boyle's film Train Spotting, not a uh, immediate uh comp for this uh, but and he uh they've gone back in touch with you and said do you remember me from cambridge or, or something like do you wonder like what would have happened if maybe you would have been reviewing another film the next week but if he hadn't have tuned into that no
2: it, it couldn't have happened but what what i like about it is i had tried to keep in touch but we've been told that john would not live far into his 30s and in 1996 he was already 46. So when he didn't respond to the number I had for him, I must have called him in winter and he was in in India. Uh, But the reason he got back in touch was not because he missed me, but because he said, I know that man. And his carer said, yeah, of course you do. So he got back in touch just to prove a point. It wasn't
4: about (laughs) me at all. That's very in keeping with the whole sequence really and his habits of mind. Um, Cool, well thank you Adam (laughs) uh, for reading and for sharing your thoughts about this book. Um, And thanks everyone for coming. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.